Hello, I'm Donald Robertson, and this is Stoicism, Philosophy is a Way of Life, the podcast. Today's guest is Tim LeBon, Cognitive Behavioural Therapist, that's CBT for short, Research Director of the Modern Stoicism Organisation, and author of Wise Therapy, Philosophy for Counsellors, Teach Yourself Positive Psychology, and more recently, 365 Ways to Be More Stoic. Tim, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm a little bit chilly here in Guildford. And a little bit had to be stoical last night because England got knocked out of the World Cup. But apart from that, I'm really excited to be on your show. Thanks for inviting me. Cool. Well, we're very pleased to have you here. So let's start with a little bit of background. Um, could you say how you first got into philosophical practice and into stoicism? Yeah, so I studied philosophy, uh, PPE actually, at Oxford uh, and then uh, did some ancient philosophy at London. Uh, and so naturally, I ended up in the world of IT because that was the time that Mrs. Thatcher was uh, savaging our, our uh, education system. Uh, but funny enough, I enjoyed that. And But then in my late 20s, I had probably what would now be called uh, an early midlife crisis. And, uh, but that was a good thing because it got me into studying uh, psychology and that got me into studying counselling, and I trained initially part-time as a psychotherapist and counsellor, and then was kind of a little bit frustrated with that, because there wasn't enough philosophy in it, and I really wanted to, to kind of uh, use philosophy to help, to help people. Uh, yeah. Fast forward to the 1990s, and a guy called Lou Marinoff came along and said, hey, philosophers can do counselling, something called philosophical counselling. I got very involved in, in that, which is actually when, when we first met Donald, didn't we, back in the yeah. late 90s. I've uh, got a photograph from back then. <laughs> that would probably be hilarious. If you yeah, I'll send you it. And, uh, yeah, and that's when I wrote the book Wise Therapy, which was, which was all about how philosophy can help the counsellor, but also got lots of uh, practical philosophy ideas, uh, like critical thinking, conceptual analysis, decision-making, and stuff. But I'm a little bit embarrassed these days to uh, to reflect on how little stoicism there is in it. I mean, there's a little bit of stoicism in it, but uh, but not that much. And that's mainly, I think, because at the time, uh, to be honest, I wasn't that expert in stoicism. You know, I'd read yeah. a bit... But also, there was just uh, a lot of uh, misinformation about Stoicism at the time, about it being about the stiff upper lip and being emotionally repressed. And uh, so... uh, Can I just interject there? Yeah, of course. I I think there's another reason, right? Which Mm -hmm. is that there was a lot of other stuff in the Mm. ER, such Mm. as existentialism. Mm. So a lot of people that were into philosophical practice and into psychotherapy that wanted to draw on philosophy were looking to existential philosophy. And I, that I began studying existential philosophy and how it related to psychoanalysis. And it took me a while to figure out there was a completely different tradition of philosophy that seemed strangely more practical. And, you know, I know that you were kind of into existential therapy at one point, and you probably came across existentialism in the philosophical practice and philosophical counselling world. But then you got more into stoicism. Yeah, well, actually, it was the other way around. It's that So when I started training as a counsellor, I looked at what was available. It sounded a bit philosophical, and there was something called existential counselling, people like Emmy Van Dersen doing it. And Emmy, Emmy was very good. But I found that it was a little bit, I don't know, existentialism didn't quite do it for me. Uh, and But I did encounter uh, people like Viktor Frankl there, who, looking back on it, is actually as much of a Stoic, probably more of a Stoic, uh, than he was an existentialist. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I was interested in existentialism. I was interested in people like Socrates and Plato and whole range of philosophical thinkers and you're right there's a there's a whole world of philosophy out there uh but what got me into stoicism was uh so i got uh invited to a a 
seminar in, in Exeter back in, I think it was 2011. And, uh, and that's where we met again, wasn't it, Donald? Yeah. Uh, and it was by someone, someone called Christopher, Professor Christopher Gill from Exeter was doing this, uh, I guess it was a, a project on, on whether Stoicism could be helpful and also trying to, to make Stoicism better known to the general public. And then connecting again with people like yourself and some other people like John Sellers and I think it was people like Jules Evans as well. It, I mean, it was a very small seminar room, but in that room there just seemed to be a – there seemed to be something about, hey, let's – think about whether stoicism could be helpful or not and we had the idea of running stoic week and at the time i was actually writing my second book on positive psychology and so i was aware of a, a very simple research methodology whereby you gave people a whole load of well-being questionnaires you got them to do something in our case some stoic exercises for a week you got them to do the stoic uh, you got them to do the well-being questionnaires again and you got some qualitative feedback as well, and you could work out whether what they'd done was actually helpful or not. And when we got the results, it was a very pleasant surprise to look at not only were people saying, hey, this doing just a week of stoicism really helped, but also to, to see the uh, quantitative measures and how much, in general, uh, stoicism had helped their well-being and to reduce negative emotions, increase their flourishing, yeah. etc. Some people thought this was a crazy idea. To do research on the benefits of studying philosophy just seemed kind of like outrageous to them. I think in the media at the time, there were some classicists and philosophers and who wrote newspaper articles kind of frowning on that aspect of it. But in retrospect, it seems like an obvious thing to do. You're absolutely right. Yeah, there, there were people who, who just thought that this was, I don't know, this wasn't how philosophy should be, should be used or, or, or that it, it wouldn't be helpful. Uh, but thinking about it now, I, mean, I think, well, why, why wasn't it done earlier? But actually, it's only the internet, really, that, that allowed this kind of thing to happen. And so could you say a little bit, while we're kind of talking about your career and so on, where are you at now? Like, do you want to tell our listeners yeah. a little bit about what your current role is and yeah. the type of work yeah. you're doing? Yeah, well, also quite key was when, so I trained as a psychotherapist and initially I was doing that only part-time, but then I, I bit the bullet and trained as a CBT therapist and uh, went back to Oxford to do my, to do it. Uh, specialist training there really loved CBT particularly that the type that was taught there which was inspired by Aaron T Beck uh, and and wanted to be a CBT therapist and mm -hmm. this is where luck comes into it because it just so happened that that was the time where the government had started uh, to train therapists and pay therapists under a scheme called IAPT improving access to psychological therapies. So having got my, uh, my specialist CBT training, I was, I was in a good position to get a job in an IAP service yeah. as a CBT therapist. So I think it was back in 2011, I got a part-time job as a CBT therapist in an IAP service in Hampshire, which is about half an hour away from Guildford, and, uh, and combined that with private practice. And since then... I'm, I, in a way, I haven't looked back because I really love working with people in that in that service, and uh, and so the kind of people that present there, they're often referred by their their doctors or they could self refer, and they've got moderate to mild problems with anxiety and depression in the mm -hmm. main, but some of them come from quite deprived areas. Some of them have got quite serious problems, and uh, and it's really it's really quite kind of satisfying to. To, to see how they can be helped by by CBT, and uh, and my roles kind of developed. So now I'm a, I'm a more senior therapist, and I do a lot of supervision and and help design uh, the training, and also involved in kind of innovating in the service. So uh, so it's quite a it's quite a tough role working in the NHS, but but quite 
satisfying and, and, and meaningful as well, I think. Can I tell you my supervision dad joke? Okay. <laughs> Someone asked me once how to define supervision, what is supervision, and I said it's like normal vision, only better. <laughs> so, hey, moving swiftly on from that, the um, so that's the type of work that you're doing at the moment, and you're working with clients with anxiety, with depression, and the NHS. So I wonder, how do you, you're obviously in a good position to comment on this, how do you see the relationship between stoicism, the philosophy, and CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy in general? Yeah, great question. Well, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, CBT happened partly because its founders, Aaron T. Beck and Albert Ellis, read Epictetus, and in particular, they liked the bit in his handbook, 1.5, you know, people are disturbed not by things, but by the view they take of things. They really loved that bit. They loved that bit. <laughs> they go fact, on and on about it. <laughs> I know. Uh, but, uh, so there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a plus and a, and a, and a minus here. So uh, the plus is that they, they really ran with that and developed an evidence-based therapy and so it's a, it's a CBT, modern CBT isn't just that. It's a kind of whole, I mean, what they do is in, in, the, in, the, in the NHS anyway, is uh, it's kind of diagnosis driven. So someone will come, they'll, they'll have a diagnosis, say, of obsessive compulsive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder or depression. And then what the uh, psychologists have done is they've developed what are called disorder-specific models, which is a kind of map for what kind of typically people who've got one of those problems, what they do, how they think. And then they've also got like a treatment package, which is designed and also tested to, uh, to help people overcome that. So it's kind of quite scientific, and it's kind of gone yeah. on from, from the kind of stuff that, uh, that you find in Epictetus to, to being something that uh, is kind of sophisticated uh, and you know and there's kind of different models and packages for all of the different anxiety disorders for instance yeah so, I think this is an aspect that when people ask this question about how stoicism relates to CBT that's the first thing they need to know because they often don't understand that CBT is to a large extent diagnosis driven and actually you could say that CBT is a little bit of a misnomer because it's singular and in a sense, it should be plural. Like there, in a, in a way, CBT kind of consists of multiple therapies or multiple therapy protocols. It, it's more than one thing, in a sense. Exactly. I think that's very well put. And it's so it should probably be cognitive behavioural therapies for all yeah. of the different all the different things. Uh, so there's there's two things around that as well. So one is that. Uh, when people are trying to apply stoicism to their mental health problems, there isn't necessarily the evidence to back up that. So if someone came for OCD, uh, they might benefit from stoicism, but I'd much rather, it would be much, much, much uh, the better thing to do yeah. to do the CBT for OCD for them, which you, involves... You, you, a, yeah, you, sorry, have a, you have a kind of professional obligation to do that as well as a CBT practitioner. You do, and also it's got a very, uh, a very strong behavioural element, which which there. I mean, it's a bit like just. I mean, sometimes uh, people say that they've had CBT, but they've had a kind of very generic CBT yeah. where they just do thought records, and that isn't necessarily the most helpful thing when you go into the specific disorders. Mm. So I don't think stoicism is any worse or better than a generic CBT. But I'm just, it's mm. just kind of all like a, wor a word of warning, really, that, that, that uh, uh, there are these kind of evidence-based protocols, which yeah. you need to adapt for, 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 the, for the patient or client. But that's, that's what to go for if, if someone's got a, uh, one of these mental health disorders. Well, let me put words into your mouth then. Is it possible <laughs> yeah. that CBT could – is it possible that stoicism could provide a kind of adjunct to some of those CBT protocols, like a philosophical framework that people might use in, in combination with it in some cases. And also, like, is it possible that stoicism would play more of a role with subclinical 
problems, problems of everyday living or resilience building outside the consulting room and, and the treatment and diagnosis, uh, generally diagnosis driven treatment. Absolutely. So people don't necessarily get quite as excited about CBT as they do about stoicism. So, you know, if no one, seems, have you ever met anyone with a CBT tattoo? Not that I know of. And I'm I, still holding out for this. But have yeah. you seen all those people with stoicism tattoos? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so sometimes I think of CBT as being a bit like going to the dentist, hopefully not quite as painful as that, but you only do it if you're in pain. And then yeah. you do as little of it as you can and start leading your life. Whereas stoicism's, I don't know, it's a bit more like going going to a meditation retreat or, or, or an interesting lecture. You're kind of enjoying it and you're thinking it can help your life in general, not just when you're in some kind of mental pain. So uh, definitely, I'm very interested in it being a, a preventative measure. In fact, I'm I'm going to propose a, a, a resilience course based on stoicism at the NHS place mm-hmm. where I where I work, uh, and but I also think that stoicism has got the potential for certain issues uh, that CBT hasn't kind of got round to to covering yet. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, anger. So you might yeah. think, ang- I mean, well, uh, your listeners might think that that you know, well, anger isn't that a mental health problem? Well. It, it hasn't been categorized as a as a disorder uh, in in the DSM. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a CBT for anger, but frankly, uh, you know what what Seneca wrote in on anger is is just as good, if not better. Yeah. And and so I think that so in 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 three hundred sixty five ways, my, my new book, you know, there's, there's a whole chapter on on anger based largely on what Seneca says. And I think it would be a really interesting piece of research to, to test whether, whether something like that uh, was, was, was as good as, as other treatments for anger or, or frustration. You know, we all get a bit frustrated at times and can, can a stoicism based on, based on Seneca help people be less frustrated? I suspect the answer is yes. Well, let me add something to that, which is if we were going to build a therapy protocol based on stoicism, there's more information available surviving about stoicism for anger than for any other psychological behavioral problem. Because Mm -hmm. we have an entire book by Seneca that's pretty thorough on stoic psychotherapy for anger, but we also have a load of stuff in the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius that specifically addresses the problem of anger. He gives a list of 10 different cognitive strategies in the meditations specifically for anger. So we've got this kind of embarrassment of riches when it comes to what do the Stoics say about anger. Um, So I think you're right there. And I'll add something else that you said, which is why haven't psychotherapists said more about anger? And there are several reasons for that. But one of them is by by its very nature, people who predominantly experience anger tend to blame other people for their problems and are less likely to self-refer for treatment than people who suffer from anxiety or depression who tend to be more self-blaming. Exactly. Which is why the the way that Seneca begins on anger, which is all of the the reasons why anger is a bad thing, are so important because, you know, you'd kind of combine that with a bit of motivational interviewing about trying to, you know, probably what you do in a in a therapy session is to say, well, you know, yeah, there are all these good reasons for being angry, but what is the cost? And there yeah. you were drawing all the things that Seneca says. Uh, so, yeah, and another another hunch I've got uh, is to do with long-term physical conditions people mm. have. Uh, so in, in our NHS surf- service, we get a lot of people w- with, uh, uh, predominantly with, with uh, they would describe themselves as having, having a, a physical problem like fibromyalgia or diabetes. Uh, but actually that brings along with it a lot of mental health problems, including depression and anxiety. And so uh, so there's a whole question of how can these people best be helped? 
because they don't necessarily identify with the mental health problem and they'd probably yeah. get quite angry if you if you told them you know you've got a problem with depression they would say no i haven't i've got a problem with fibromyalgia yeah so i my hunch is that uh, a kind of stoic approach might be helpful for these people because it's kind of talking about strength it's talking about resilience it's talking about courage it's yeah. talking about leading a good life despite the hand that that uh fate might 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 have dealt you that you can still flourish uh so that's my that's a hunch i've got which which i think would be really good to to test out you're talking about chronic health problems but also chronic pain as well Mm -hmm. would be another way of framing it Mm -hmm. and actually funnily enough like anger as you mentioned these are often clients who don't want therapy or don't think that therapy would be relevant to them. Even people with chronic back pain, or you know, often part of their problem is psychological or behavioral as well as as well as physical. So definitely, um, it's an interesting situation, if you like, that some of the people that might benefit the most from stoicism uh, in relation to to therapy might be the ones that are least likely to self-refer for for CBT. That reminds me of another issue with stoicism is that the demographic that it it appeals to is different, I think, than the demographic that CBT appeals to. There are certain types of people that have an aversion to psychotherapy and counselling. I'm sure you may have noticed this. Mm -hmm. So I've got some experience of working uh, with some of them, and you probably have too. I, I used to work in high schools, with socially excluded kids mm. and a lot of the young boys that I worked with who were mainly 15 years old would have kind of didn't like the idea of going and talking about their feelings to a counsellor because it seemed kind of um I don't know it was stigmatized for them if you like and whereas stoicism kind of appealed to them because of its association with toughness and weirdly I find the same thing with prison inmates and people who are serving in the military, like they often therapy and counselling have a kind of stigma for them that stoicism doesn't have. Like stoicism, in some ways, uh, appeals to them, and so because of that, I think it has the potential to reach a, a wholly different demographic. People that might have never read books on self help or therapy before get into it because they've read Marcus Aurelius. I think that's absolutely right, and if I can add two other groups that I think you know, as well as. Uh, younger people perhaps mainly young younger men there uh, the military people in prisons uh, i think maybe older people as well sometimes don't like the idea of yeah. uh, of therapy or that there's something wrong with them and might be attracted to to stoicism uh, and a rather larger group than any of those four would be men men generally men generally uh you know in stoic week uh so i've I've been running Stoic Week the last couple of years uh, with with Eve Riches, mm-hmm. and also been doing the research on it uh, since since Stoic Week started in 2012. And consistently, we found that more men than women do Stoic Week by a proportion of about I think it's about 60 to 40 or 65 to 35. It varies. Now, interestingly, women benefit as much as the men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like stoicism is just for men at all, no. and we're very interested in 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 in, in more, more women taking part. Mm. Uh, but I think what you said is absolutely right, Donald. Uh, in general, men are a group who just don't don't get into psychological help or self help as much as women, but they need it. Or mm. I think I think they could benefit from it. You know, so they they you know they're more likely to go down the pub. Or, or whatever than than to to read a self help book, but I think they're more likely to read a, a stoic self help book or do a stoic course than they would be some other forms of uh, of help. Yeah, absolutely. So, Tim, are you saying that stoicism is therapy for people that don't like therapy? <laughs> uh, I think <laughs> I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but uh, yeah, I think I think I think it could be. I think uh, the way I would put it is like we're living in an era where we're buried under mountains of self-help literature. Mm-hmm. We've never had as much self-help literature. Like, mm-hmm. although people seem crazier than ever, right? If you look online, 
But although we've got all of this help, there's still a lot of people that don't read any of it and aren't interested in it. Mm -hmm. And those people will sometimes say they watched the movie Gladiator and Mm -hmm. then they went out and read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius Mm -hmm. and they found it helped them in life. But that Mm -hmm. may be the only exposure that they've got to any kind of therapeutic or self-help literature. And those people particularly interest me because they are like, we as therapists, we tend to forget that there's whole chunks of society that have no interest in what we do for a living like they would never crack open a self-help book or read an article about it normally. They're kind of in a bubble, like completely isolated from the world of therapy, as it were. But stoicism can reach those people. I think, I hope so. I think I think that's a really interesting idea. And maybe that'll be one of the takeaways from our conversation today. Stoicism is for, it's therapy for people that don't like therapy. Yeah, it reaches the parts that other therapies can't reach or something like that, or society. So the other thing I was going to ask you, actually, that you kind of touched on a little bit, is do you think stoicism is sticky? So I think the holy grail of mental health research is prevention is better than cure. Mm-hmm. And this is a baby, like uh, it's in its infancy research, in a sense, uh, on resilience building. And it's been strongly associated with positive psychology, and cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, But there may be an argument to say that stoicism has a unique value in relation to resilience building, because there's something you mentioned earlier about stoicism that's different from CBT, which is it's a body of literature and a philosophy of life that people treat almost like a Western yoga, like almost like a religion. So could it be that it's longer lasting, like, or that people adhere to it more permanently than they might to training in positive psychology or, or CBT. So I haven't got any data on that yet, but I think it would be a really interesting thing to research. And as you say, there's, there's a case for that being true because I think so. When I finish a course of, of CBT treatment with someone, we do this thing called the blueprint, which mm. is uh, yeah. what have I learned from therapy and how what am I going to do to keep it going? Now, uh, as you can imagine, sometimes people re-refer, and so mm. a couple of years later, you might have seen this client and the therapy went really well, and they recovered, mm. and they come back, and you ask them, "Hey, do you remember that last session we did that blueprint?" Uh, mm-hmm. How have you used that in the last two years? And uh, more often than not, unfortunately, the answer is, oh, yeah, I kind of uh, put that in the attic or something, you know, or the, or the equivalent oh, of yeah. that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that piece of paper you gave me. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, I'm going to say something a bit controversial. It seems to me that when CBT practitioners do the blueprint, which is their attempt to maintain therapeutic improvements long-term with the client. They give them a plan to take away that they expect them to follow indefinitely, really, or in the longer Mm, term. Exactly. It's a bit of a Hail Mary. It's a little bit of a, like, let's hope this works. Because adherence to those kind of plans is is not great uh, long-term. Whereas... You know, I, I was the way I would put it, a similar observation is that if you give people a self-help book on CBT, if you're lucky, they'll read it. Um, they might get really into it, but it would be unusual that they would keep reading it every year for the rest of their life, right? That mm. would be surprising. Mm. But people who get into stoicism often will say they go back and reread the meditations or Epictetus every year or every few years. You know, they keep returning to stoicism indefinitely. And, uh, yeah, like in that sense, I think it's stickier than CBT. And also, for many people, stoicism will, will really speak to them. They'll say, yeah, I this thing about uh, the dichotomy of control or this thing about, about wisdom, uh, I, that, 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 that's kind of what I thought all along, but now it's been put in, 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 this, in this way that, that, that I really understand and can implement and so that they just they just kind of make it part of their 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 philosophy of life and, and get into the habit of doing it. And it's kind of cooler 
in a sense. Yes. You know, like I was, I made this joke about, you know, whether they get tattoos of like Albert Ellis or whether like Marcus Aurelius, but the Stoicism people enjoy reading it more. Like the meditations is uh, a much more profound, uh, moving, enjoyable, memorable text than, you know, David Bunsey's Feeling Good, for example, or like, you know, any book on, on CBT. It's more quotable, more, more tweetable. Yeah. So it's more memorable. And they'd prefer it to have it as part of their identity as well. You know, I'm a, I'm a stoic rather than, oh, I'm someone who, who was a patient yeah. for CBT. Well, that's an interesting psychological observation because CBT doesn't delve that, by its very nature, that much into role uh, theory in social psychology. But, you know, at a very high level of cognitive functioning, if you like, one of the questions is whether people actually identify with a whole cluster of ideas or not. Do they view themselves and we don't even really have a name, let alone, you know, for somebody who's popped out the other end of CBT therapy. They don't call themselves a CBT or like no. it's hard to identify with CBT, but people identify with stoicism. They call themselves a stoic. So that high level of cognitive identification with the role kind of is something is like a glue like that can bind together all of the behaviors and cognitions you know, all of the lower level cognitive behavioral stuff that constitutes the strategies that we want people to keep doing long term. What about third wave CBT or, you know, more broadly, you we mentioned earlier that it's there are actually multiple CBTs in a mm -hmm. sense or people who work in the NHS or CBT practitioners are more likely to think of it that way is to think I'm really doing a bunch of different therapies. There's a cluster of them mm -hmm. like, that are related but distinct. Other flavors of CBT that you think are more like stoicism than others, or you know, other what do you think the relationship between stoicism, for example, and the second versus third wave of cognitive therapy is like? Yeah, I think you can see similarities between between them all really and actually i'm not sure if i've if i said this before to you or, or, or publicly but i i think stoicism could be a, another third wave cbt yeah i think although you know what i said earlier was i've got some reservations about stoicism for mental health problems i i think it could be presented as a, a kind of transdiagnostic cbt that not yeah. for particular problems but something that can help in general and, uh, and so I think that is one way of, of, of framing a kind of stoic therapy. But to answer your question, uh, there's certainly a lot of similarities between C, between stoicism and, and, and ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with that, uh, but it's kind of what, what, the, what the people that do ACT say is uh, be aware of your values and just move towards them and be aware of your 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 thoughts, but don't necessarily get taken in by them. Uh, <laughs> so, in other words, move towards your values despite having having thoughts to to do something different. Um, I mean, there's more to act to than that, but for it, very crudely, that's that's what it's saying. And that's kind of a bit like what you do in in stoicism. It's uh, what are your values? Although, although stoicism's a bit a bit more directive than that, it says actually the things that that, that are about to be valued more than anything are the cardinal virtues, uh, and then move towards these, and uh, so act according to virtue, even if you feel like doing something else. And then with your thoughts, again, we've got Epictetus saying saying things like you should be like the night watch with your thoughts and don't necessarily uh, be taken in by them, examine them, and if necessary, uh, disregard them. So you can certainly see some very strong uh, yeah. resemblances between ACT and Stoicism, for example. Yeah. Like the ACT concept of living in accord with values is so similar to uh, the concept of virtue in ancient philosophy in general that it's surprising they don't refer to it. And the uh, the stuff about mindfulness and 
uh, verbal diffusion or cognitive distancing, I think, is also really similar to some of the major themes in the, the Stoic literature. Do you think Stoicism could be like a transdiagnostic third yeah. wave approach, yeah. particularly to resilience building? Yeah, yeah. The other, absolutely. The other uh, third wave CBT approach that I think is quite similar in some ways to Stoicism, which might surprise some listeners, uh, is compassion-focused therapy. So yeah. compassion-focused therapy is is the idea that people need to be more compassionate and self-compassionate. And the reason it might surprise people is because sometimes Stoicism is thought of as a very tough philosophy and not all that compassionate. But actually, I think Stoicism is is very compassionate and self-compassionate. Uh, but the reason that I think there's a very strong similarity is that... Uh, so people like Paul Gilbert have have uh, developed this this thing called CFT, compassion focused therapy, and in that, one of the key techniques is to imagine this ideal compassionate being mm-hmm. who uh, has the key virtues of uh, wisdom and strength and caring commitment. And hey, doesn't that sound a bit like the virtues? Doesn't that sound a bit like the ideal Stoic sage or the Stoic role model? So actually, in CFT, you get people to imagine this this being and kind of what would this person say to you? Uh, imagine yourself being this person. And, uh, and that sounds to me rather like Stoicism. I'd go further than that and say that Marcus Aurelius describes one of his Stoic teachers, so the, the Stoic ideal, as being free from unhealthy passions and yet full of philostorgia or, or love, like philanthropic uh, or brotherly love. But the part of the reason that people don't normally see Stoicism this way is just down to a problem of translation. Um, the, uh, for the Stoics, uh, we say one of the cardinal virtues is justice, or dikaiosune, um, but uh, the Greek word encompasses compassion, which the English word justice doesn't really. Hmm. So one of the main virtues in Stoicism is eugenia, which means, there are a number of different words they use, but basically it means kindness like, or benevolence or trying to help people or being friendly towards them. Um, and it kind of encompasses what we mean by compassion. And it's one of the main themes that recurs in particular throughout the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. He refers to it a lot. But somehow that kind of gets lost in translation unless you're unless you're looking for it. So I, I think there's a case to be made for kind of re de, presenting stoicism in a more compassion focused way. I agree, definitely. definitely. So, uh, what about your experience in terms of the research that's been done on stoicism in your role as research director with modern stoicism, or more generally, what sort of things have you learned about stoicism? Yeah, well, to go back to 2011, 2012, when we started running Stoic Week, I was a kind of semi-skeptic about Stoicism. Uh, And so the first thing that we learned was that most people found it beneficial. But also, I kind of wasn't that surprised that it reduced negative emotions, uh, you know, like, like anger or sadness. But what we found also was that there was almost equivalent uh, improvement in positive emotions like joy. Uh, And later on, and this is the thing that kind of was almost got me falling off my seat was we looked at the, uh, the connection between stoicism and character strengths. So in positive psychology, there's a lot of research into character strengths not just the kind of main virtues, but they but they have individual character strengths like optimism and perseverance. And so we did a we did a Stoic week where we gave people a questionnaire, quite a long questionnaire actually, about character strengths, and then we could compare that with with their stoicism. And so we could find out which character strength was most positively associated with stoicism. And what we found out, which wasn't so surprising, was that uh, 
a lot of character strengths were positively associated with being stoic. Uh, in fact, all of them were. That was that was a finding number one, was that uh, every single character strength they had has a positive, a significant positive correlation with stoicism. But the thing that got me almost falling off my chair was the number one. So, you know, we thought it might be self-control or it might be fairness or it might be bravery or persistence. It was, I mean, all of those scored highly, but the number one was zest. Zest, yeah. you know, being excited, being enthusiastic, trying to live each day to the fullest. Uh, that came out as the character strength most associated with stoicism as, as we measured it. And so we thought, okay, well, that might be a, a, a just one of these weird flukes. But then we also measured which character strength had increased the most after living like a stoic for a week. And guess what? It was zest again. So people actually, people who were stoic started off being zestful. And then when they were living like a stoic for a week, they became even more zestful. So uh, that is really interesting, particularly as it is so different from the the caricature of a stoic as being someone that's really dour and passive and, I don't know, a bit more like Eeyore than Tigger. We don't associate zest with Epictetus. (laughs) Or no. Seneca, or Marcus, really, or, or any, or Cato, or any of them, really. But do you? Is there another word that's used? Because it's just kind of an unusual word in a sense. Is it part of a cluster of traits in that classification, or is there another? How would you, if you were going to paraphrase it and define what's meant by zest in that research context? Is there another word or phrase that you think captures the research construct? Maybe joy joy right see that is a term that's more common uh, uh kara in uh, in greek is a very commonly used word in the stoic literature um so that there's something that we can direct, directly connect it with uh, mm. in the literature there mm. so you know you're asking me about about the research so that that would be my my number one headline uh, uh-huh. uh but also we found that uh Stoicism does seem to be uh, closely connected with reducing anger. As I said, we could do with some more more thorough yeah. kind of research programs, give them a whole protocol, see what difference it makes. But just the kind of the very generic uh, Stoic Week course uh, does reduce does, did seem to reduce anger quite quite significantly. Uh, it improves resilience, which is as we said, is something that we are very confident that Stoicism can help with. Uh, mm-hmm. So when, when we did the month-long Stoic course, that helped significantly with resilience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, uh, we found that when people do the month-long course, that uh, it is sticky and that a few months later, yeah, they, they, they maintain the benefits. What length of follow-up did you do? Well, I think we did a three-month follow-up to that. We could do with doing some some uh, longer-term follow-ups, I think, and that's yeah. something that liked very much like to do. I haven't done a six-month follow-up. Was it just three months? I can't. I'd have to check that. We'll go back and have a look. Yeah. Be, you also did that correlational study looking at the Liverpool Stoicism scale. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, we developed a scale called the SABS, which is measuring people's Stoicism, how we define Stoicism. Uh, and then we also uh, took the Liverpool scale, which is this kind of more uh, lowercase Stoicism, uh, stiff upper lip. Uh, and that's so the Liverpool scale has been used in the medical profession. That's what they talk about when they talk about stoicism, mm-hmm. and uh, and so that measures things like you know whether you cry or not, uh, whether you repress emotions, whether you tell other people that you're sad, and that isn't at all the same as what we understand by by stoicism. Anyway, what we did was we uh, we asked people to fill in both questionnaires. The the modern stoicism sabs questionnaire kind of uppercase stoicism and this lowercase stiff upper lip stoicism we should and, say what it stands for it stands for stoic attitudes and behavior scale and i exactly. should address a criticism so sometimes the kind of cranky philosophy nerds will say you can't measure stoicism mm-hmm. like but it doesn't matter because you can measure the extent to which people identify 
with typical Stoic doctrines and uh, ways of behaving. Like, and so what we can look at is the correlation between how much someone identifies with typical Stoic doctrines and how much they put into practice typical Stoic strategies and other stuff. And for listeners who aren't familiar with research, we should say correlational research, particularly if we're doing it online, is, I guess, in a sense, a, more, a simpler and a more robust way of deriving statistical data. So that's also part of the appeal of, of looking at these two things. You, all you have to do is get people to fill out two questionnaires and compare the results statistically. Exactly. And that means that in Stoke Week, we could get several thousands of people to do this. Yeah. Uh, so you so get quite robust data that way. You can. And what we found was that there was hardly any association between these two constructs, between Stoicism with an uppercase S and Stoicism with a lowercase S, between real Stoicism, the philosophy, and this kind of... Uh, Stiff upper lip stoicism. So, so wait, so wait a minute, Tim. All those, all those people that write newspaper articles yeah. and books, like equating stoic philosophy with lowercase stoicism or toxic masculinity, which is a very similar idea, like and all that kind of stuff. Are you saying they're all wrong? They're all completely wrong. They're all completely wrong. All the, who completely who wrong. It? The stuff on the internet that's <laughs> completely wrong about stoicism and yeah. the newspaper and stuff and even some academics and kind of like well known like are completely wrong about that who would have thought it sometimes research can be useful in debunking popular myths exactly and funnily enough as well uh we'd obviously found before that this kind of philosophy of stoicism was really helpful for uh well-being but the lowercase stoicism was kind of i think it was kind of neutral you know, it, it, it was helpful in some ways, but actually also unhelpful in other ways, which was exactly what we'd hypothesized to be the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's food for thought. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what you've been doing with all of this knowledge that you've acquired about stoicism and how you've been putting it out there and so on. So you've taken all of the, everything you've learned from your clinical practice and everything you've learned from all of this research, and you've distilled it into 365 ways to be more stoic. That's the name of your new book. I wanted to ask you, how is that different from other books on stoicism? So I've, you know, a bit, a bit like we were saying that, that stoicism might be therapy for people that don't like therapy. This might be a book on stoicism for people that don't necessarily like reading so, because it's distilled into uh, 365 little, uh, some of them are case vignettes, some of them are quizzes, some of them are quotes uh, that you could read. I'm, you know, I'd like to think of people reading it over their, their morning coffee or they might choose to, to binge read it. So that's one, I think, nice feature of it that you can read it in in, 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 in little small small chunks. Uh, but also one of the key things is that uh, we've included over 50 real-life Stoic success stories. Uh, right. a, few, a few of them are drawn from, from literature, so it's kind of like what the ancient Stoics did, but most of them are modern Stoics. Because yeah. running, you know, running Stoic Week, we know that a lot of people benefit from Stoicism. So we just ask people, some kind of well-known Stoic figures, but also yeah. also people who who the readers won't have heard of, who would who have benefited from Stoicism, yeah. and said, "Hey, tell me a situation where you've used Stoicism and you think it's helped you or other people." And so, uh, yeah. reading those some of those stories, I think provide really memorable uh, yeah. Stoic role models of, of Stoicism in in action. People really benefit from those kind of real-life examples. I tend to include case studies in my books, but they're mainly about people that died around 2,000 years ago. <laughs> yes. Yours are more recent. Yeah. And uh, so I... And some of the feedback I've been getting from, from people is that is that they, they seem to really, really like that, that those... those uh, well, success stories. We know that's how people learn, and you know, in psychotherapy, like modeling is important. 
And we know that people benefit more when they're able to model from people that they can identify with, that they consider to be similar to themselves. Like, so it, absolutely, it's logical from a CBT point of view to give loads of case studies and examples of modern day people, like everyday people that have benefited from stoicism in different yeah. walks of life. And also, I can't help but notice that my wife's name is <laughs> on the cover of your book, like, because she helped you edit the book as well. What was Casey's contribution to 365 Ways? So I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, yes. So, it, so Casey was Casey was brilliant. So Casey was 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 my editor, and uh, I think this is something that that's probably pretty unique about about this book. That uh, so you know I'm a middle aged English male. Casey is a younger American female. So I think it's got those two perspectives and the way it worked would be, you know, I would write something, it would come back from Casey, sometimes uh, made it rather more uh, relatable, rather rather uh, breezier than my style. I mean, I thought I could write, I mean, I wrote a self-help book before and I thought that was, that was, that was okay, pretty understandable. But I think what Casey's done is, 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 is helped turn it into something that is really enjoyable to read and and uh, and um, we've tried to make it amusing at times as 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 well so uh, so that i think is 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 a really positive thing about about the book uh, the other thing that i'd like to mention is that uh, as as we said i started off with, with with as you know learning philosophy and interested in practical philosophy in general i then went into positive psychology which is kind of the science of well-being and then i've worked as a as a therapist for for, for nearly 30 years now and as a specialist cbt therapist for for the last dozen or so and so what i've tried to do is to uh bring all those together to integrate them so uh mm -hmm. So it is a book about Stoicism, and there are a lot of, you'll find a lot of Epictetus, you'll find a lot of Marcus Aurelius, you'll find yeah. quite a bit of Seneca, two whole chapters drawing on Seneca. But what we've also tried to do is to spot places in the, uh, the modern research where uh, either they're saying Stoic things, but they're not realizing it, yeah. or, which happens quite a lot, or they're, they're adding to, to the Stoic uh, Stoicism really by providing some uh, evidence-based ways uh, to help. So, for instance, something that I don't think you can I don't think you can find it in other books on Stoicism is the chapter on each of the virtues. So, there's a chapter on self-control, on courage, on wisdom, on justice, as understood in the broad, as you've described it, as including love and kindness and compassion. Chapter on each of those, which. Uh, it's got uh, quite a lot from the from the ancient Stoics, but also some uh, more contemporary evidence-based ideas, for instance, mm -hmm. about how to be more self-controlled, how to be more courageous, which I, I think will be really helpful for readers. I think there are two main benefits of your book that set it above many of the other books available in Stoicism. And that is, number one, I'm going to say something controversial now. Number one, because I read a lot of these books and articles and so on, Many of the books that have appeared over the past 10 years or so about Stoicism are written by people who don't know anything about Stoicism, which seems to me to be a disadvantage. Yes. Like, like, but it's true. There's even a guy who has a YouTube channel about Stoicism who admits that he's never actually read any of the Stoics, which seems crazy to me, but mm. you know, like that it's surprising. Whereas Tim spent, as long as I can remember, like studying stoicism talking to people about stoicism doing research on stoicism like you know your background to begin with was in academic philosophy um you'd already studied some group what had you studied plato and aristotle at university before yes you into stoicism? absolutely yeah. like and then also a lot of these self-help books about stoicism are written by people who don't know anything about psychology or the psychology of well-being or research and psychotherapy or anything that would be relevant to to evidence-based self-help and so often they contain bad psychological advice 
or they lack good psychological advice. Whereas Tim has done his work in positive psychology, he's written about it and research and CBT and resilience. So he actually knows the difference between good and bad psychological advice, which is something you'd also think would be a prerequisite for writing a psychological self-help book. Um, so those are the reasons why, another couple of reasons why I think your book is one that I like to recommend. And also, like you say, because it's written by a man and a woman and a Brit and an American, and you're aiming for this kind of, to give people this sense of very diverse perspectives and how many different people can benefit and to make it more accessible and relatable. Having that combination of two people contributing to it, I think helps give it that that kind of feel. You know, many books you feel are written very much from the author's perspective. I think your book is feels like it's written more for a, a diverse audience as it will. And also because Casey's involvement, I think there aren't many books where women are involved in writing or editing it. Um, so your book, I think, would be one that, that I suspect female readers would find more appealing and accessible. I certainly um, hope so, yeah. What's the reception been like so far? What was the audience that you th- you aimed to reach? Who do you think you're re- you're reaching, and you know how have people responded so far? I saw you got a review from Wendy Dryden. Did I did. So that's so, impressive. So yeah. So Wendy is. I remember when I when I was studying psychotherapy. You know, Wendy had already written a hundred books or articles on psychotherapy yeah. then. So so that was that was yeah that was really good to hear that he he really was recommending the book uh so yeah it's been it's been it's been really positive and uh so some people are telling me that uh they're buying copies for their for their friends and relatives as, as stocking fillers and uh <laughs> it's a funny thing to do really because uh you know are you giving them a message that they that they need help but i think because it's a a positive book about how to live a better life that that uh uh, it is a book that you can give to people in that way, uh, but they're yeah. also sn- sneaking one for themselves. I had one uh, long, long time coaching client who I who I saw the other day, who who said, "Well, uh, I've just read the first chapter on the dichotomy of control, and uh, only now do I really get what mm-hmm. the dichotomy of control really is." Because funnily enough, when you're doing a when you're actually doing a, a therapy or counselling session, very often it's it's kind of more, more like client centred. You're not necessarily giving them all the information. Yeah. Uh, uh, so actually, reading a book, he said, "Yeah, now I really I really get this thing that that, that it really is a dichotomy, and uh, and I really see the power of it." And and that was that was really really pleasing. Yeah, uh, had someone else who was a kind of a seasoned stoic. Who, who told me, uh, yeah, I, 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 I wasn't sure, to be honest about it, but before I read it, because, you know, I thought it would be uh, just for, for newbies to Stoicism. Mm-hmm. But he said, I can see what you've done. You're starting off with uh, the real, you're putting it in really simple terms to start with. And then it's kind of like a guided discovery mm-hmm. uh, uh, onto the more, the, more, the more subtle and sophisticated stuff. So, like the very first entry is deliberately, uh, you know, about sports, mm-hmm. and uh, it was Emma Raducanu and how when she won the U.S. Open, she happened to say something about controlling the controllables. So it's kind of like a cliche, isn't it? You know, lots of sports people say, "Hey, you know, how did you do so well?" Well, I just control the controllables. So yeah. we start off with that, which is kind of like a cliche, almost a truism. And then moving on to the serenity prayer and how that kind of yeah. takes it to a, to a slightly different level. And then going on to the specific stoic take on on uh, dichotomy of control, uh-huh. going into the virtues and the stoic archer. And so it's really nice to hear that, you know, that some early, early readers have really got it, you know, which is that, yes, it's going to start off with the basics, but it's going to kind of take you on the journey. Uh, and I... In the last chapter, I kind of reveal the the framework that's behind it, which is called, which I call the Stoic Elevator. The idea being that if you go to the first level, the dichotomy of control, that's mm-hmm. going to be helpful. But if you go even further up to some of the more esoteric elements of Stoicism, it's going to be even more useful. But it's your choice. 
you know, yeah. whatever you take from it, it's probably going to be helpful. But uh, I hope this book will encourage people to uh, to embrace stoicism and become a better version of themselves and yeah. be happier. I think it's a good place to start with the dichotomy of control. Like we were talking earlier about tattoos. Robbie Williams, the pop star, has a tattoo of the Serenity Prayer on him, or at least a kind of joke version of it. And I'm sure other people I've seen have got the tattoo, uh, tattooed themselves with the Serenity Prayer, which was popularized, we should say, by by Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's very similar to the dichotomy of control. I would say the dichotomy of control, hands down, is my favorite dichotomy. Mm. Easily. Like, but uh, so the book's doing well. Um, is there anything else, Tim, that you want to mention or tell our listeners about uh, before we finally wrap things up today? Well, just to say, I, I hope that uh, some of them will look at the book. And if they want to contact me or actually what they could do is subscribe to my newsletter where I'll be yeah. announcing. I've got some thoughts about how I might support reading the book, for instance, on my YouTube channel. So what they need to do is to go to my website, www.timlebon.com. There's something that says newsletter. Click on that, subscribe to the newsletter, and they'll they'll hear about all, all, all the developments and, and other stuff I'm, I'm doing, which I hope will be of interest. Awesome. Uh, or as we say here in Montreal, say formidable. <laughs> Thanks to Tim LeBon for joining us. And thank you for listening to Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life. Be sure to share the link with your friends. I'm looking forward to the next time. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Donald Robertson. <laughs>